0: our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to be alive, courtesy of your grace and mercy. Uh, We thank you for another chance to bring you glory as vessels of honor. We ask that you help us increase our faith, uh, give us more humility and patience, and more obedience motivated by your great love. We're grateful for the opportunity, Father, and we're very grateful for your mercy and your gentleness with each one of us. Father, we also ask right now that you bless those who are sick, those who are struggling in our congregation. Uh, You know exactly who they are and what they need. We ask that you comfort them as only you can. And Father, most of all, we're grateful forever that you gave up your uniquely born son for us. Once for all, 2,000 years ago on that cross, so that we don't have to worry about salvation, but we can enjoy it and embrace it and just give thanks and praise to you that you saved us by his blood. Father, we ask that you bless this message, that you guide us by your Holy Spirit, and it's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit, amen. Once again, God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make, part nine. So on Sunday, uh, we had a lot of moving parts. And while I really thought it was, it was great, I loved to just see how the Spirit is orchestrating everything and bringing everything together so beautifully in harmony. Uh, at the same time, I was thinking how grateful I am to be able to review a lesson tonight, like Sunday's lesson. Because there were, there were a lot of moving parts, and it, it's, we never get it all the first time, ever. And uh, it's just a privilege to be able to try to, I don't know, maybe break it down a little more, give you a different perspective. So I look forward to that tonight, see what he does. The Spirit will guide the lesson. And as Pastor mentioned, too, uh, the things we've been on lately are, are really big topics, you know, kind of expansive. So they take some uh, breaking down and some synthesizing, not only in the lessons, but in your own soul, in your own time, in your own heart. And the other thing that hit me as Pastor came back last Thursday from vacation and kind of reviewed the series on mercy, it's fun to watch the Spirit boil things down for us like to one or two points in the end of it all. like Pastor mentioned on Thursday, sometimes we work and we labor through a subject. And it all leads to a simple, effective conclusion for our souls. Maybe you individually got one or two points out of the last series that you can really grab onto for your own life right now. Uh, But even from the pulpit, you know, this was the pulpit that, uh, the pulpit, this was the passage or the, the point that Pastor brought up kind of as a summary to the series on mercy, that we should appreciate God's mercy for us, not test it. So all that labor, like through five lessons, for example, on being vessels of mercy, um, was good, was, you know, I'm sure we get different things out of it. But it takes that labor to get to this point, if that makes any sense. Like in our weakness, in our, in our um, inability to grasp things right away, he says, let's go through this step-by-step, step, take it through it, and then let's come down, let's boil it down at the end. But we had to go through the process. So that's what I get out of it, out of pastor's comments in particular. Again, on the board, we should appreciate God's mercy for us, not test it. And on Sunday, our old analogy of the push-pull dynamic came up, even fitting for the statement on the board. The good things of God. If we have faith in them, pull us or draw us towards goodness and obedience. So uh, the key phrase there, if we have faith in them. The good things of God, if we have faith in them, pull us and draw us towards goodness and obedience in our walk, in our lives. If we lack faith in God's goodness, then we need to be pushed to goodness and obedience. And we're going to see this as kind of a, a little bit of a theme tonight. Um, faith being a, a major focus. And when we talk about being pushed into uh, or pushed towards God's, obedient, uh, God's goodness and obedience, we're not talking against our wills, but by the grace and discipline of a loving father, we're persuaded in a certain direction. He knows how to push every one of us, right? Not against our will. But it's like almost like putting bumpers up when we need the bumpers, right? We're going a certain direction, and he bounces you back in that way, in that direction. He knows exactly what's going to make you turn around, literally and figuratively. So that's, that's grace, as we know. He's never violating our will. But do we really want to live life that way? Is that how God designed us to live life? To need to be pushed all the time? Or prodded? you know to go in the right direction and why is it why is it that that's where we find ourselves often it's almost always because of a lack of faith a lack of a willingness to trust god which we'll see coming up so when we have a good perspective on god's mercy as on the board we're pulled towards him we're overwhelmed by his love and his mercy towards us as sinners If you stop and think about that for any amount of time, you have to be humbled and overwhelmed. And that appreciation, being drawn in by his love, results in peace in our lives and hearts. Again, it's not rocket science. These things, which we do resist, but they're simple. They have direct relationships and correlations and results. But when we have a poor perspective on God's mercy, which we saw in the last series, either we doubt doubt it sometimes or we think we don't need God's mercy sometimes, we need a push. And we end up thanking God for that in the end, even though at the time it hurts or we we kick against it. So at this point, we're wise to remember uh, this point on the board, which kind of came out on Sunday. There's no greater power in the universe than the love of God. There's no greater magnetic force, if you will, that draws people to him, as in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, which we'll see later. There's no greater power in the universe than the love of God, no greater magnetic force that draws people to him. And this is right in line with the principle we heard over and over in the series on mercy, that God's glory is his mercy and compassion. This goes right in line with that there's no greater power in the universe than the love of God but if we decide to test it or doubt it God's mercy that is then that literally becomes our problem that literally becomes our problem in other words you reap what you sow you create your own problem to go through now to struggle through when you didn't have to if you just had faith We do it to ourselves all the time. We put ourselves behind the eight ball spiritually. We cause ourselves grief and lack of peace. And we cause our Heavenly Father to have to use push methods, like discipline, to get us back to truth. And while that might be uncomfortable, our loving Father will do whatever it takes for us to see, for us to open our eyes to the overwhelming glorious nature of his mercy the glorious nature of his mercy think of the fact the Bible says God is love think of the fact the Bible says God is light when we get to heaven and we see his light that blinding light that you can still look at because it's so warm that's a visual of God's love He is love, right? And mercy and grace are from his love. So, and again, right now we have to do this by faith, but there's an overwhelming, glorious nature of his mercy that he wants us to see. It takes a willingness, though. As came up on Sunday, it's like a struggling teenager who doubts his parents, love him, and care for him. And he often thinks he knows better. Or that his parents' discipline towards him is not out of love. And we've all been there, right? We're all teenagers. I don't, know who, I don't know any teenagers that I know personally that didn't go through that feeling while they were going through it. So, like him, like the struggling teenager, we often learn the hard way by the push method. But the humble teenager enjoys the security that his parents provide. Even though he doesn't always get his way, he knows wisely that it's for his own good. And there's a certain security, as we know, in discipline, in having boundaries given to us by proper authorities. So he is peace, in other words. The humble teenager is able to enjoy the security pa- parents give him regardless of his own wishes being met. He's at peace because he trusts in his parents' love and mercy towards him. I was talking to Christian on um, Sunday at the picnic, not just any old Christian, but our Christian, you know, Christian Fredericks, whose wife is Lydia, and they have five of our beautiful children we get to share in our local church family here. And he was saying to me how he learned so many little lessons from his five children about our relationship with God as our Father. And I told him, I'm like, I'm like jealous. The things he gets to see, uh, he was basically saying on a daily basis, of how you know, children react or, or interact with a father, with a parent, and then it immediately correlates to you know, us and God the Father. But suffice it to say, on the board... This is kind of the point. He was humbled by everything he was learning, you know, through small little lessons. Humble children will enjoy the riches of their parents' grace, just as humble believers will be at rest in the Heavenly Father's merciful hands. But as you can see, the key word is humble. If someone's not willing to accept the authority and operate in them by faith, or towards them by faith, in faith, They're not going to enjoy the glorious nature of mercy. Whether it be literal children on this earth, under their parents' authority, or us children under God's authority. Humility, once again, is the key to what? To resting, to having peace, or not having peace. And it's a choice. The other choice that's coming up a lot is to trust or not to trust and we're talking interactively every day do we trust God or not trust him and it leads to contentment or lack of contentment or satisfaction we might say in the soul or lack of satisfaction we often doubt God or at least question him and the fact is that growing up takes time there's no way around that You can think you're spiritual as you want to think you are. And then one day God shows you you're not as spiritual as you thought you were, right? We've all been there. One little mosquito comes at us and we're like, oh, my God. We freak out. We live in fear. When just yesterday we said, I don't fear, I have the love of God. We get a little puffed up. But growing up takes time. And that's okay. And God understands that. And we are going to doubt God. We are going to question God. The thing is, is what's our habit What's our lifestyle? And if it is a lifestyle, if doubting God is a lifestyle, we need to repent and we need to hit the book more because something's missing. Something's not clicking if that's our lifestyle. That's not what our good Father has for us. And as we'll see, that's just us getting in the way. Instead of trusting in the Lord from a good perspective, We sometimes want God to prove himself to us again and again. How quickly we forget. How stubborn and faithless can we be, especially when we stop and think about all the times he already came through for us. And that's a a vital exercise. Maybe that's one reason God asks us to pray every day. Because if you just stop, I mean, can you think of a couple times when God saved your butt? Or it was even unexplainable how you got out of a situation? Or you deserve something for sure and you have no idea why you didn't get it? Well, grace and mercy were on your side. And you know, you know when God intervenes. You just know. Because it's supernatural. It's, it's beyond explanation. So why do we forget those times? As though they didn't happen. We're so stupid, right? We need reminder after reminder after reminder. Remember, you're nothing more than a vessel of mercy. Don't stop thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. So the Spirit reminded us on Sunday, it's a waste of God-given time on this earth to be pushed into realizing God's mercy in your life. Just have faith. Trust him regardless of what sight tells you at times. 2 Corinthians 5.7 We might say, stop thinking so much. I know I do it. I, I catch myself overanalyzing everything, including my own faith. And God's like, would you just have the faith of a child? Does a child... When they decide to trust you, are they overthinking anything? What differentiates the faith of a child versus the faith of an arrogant adult? Maybe we just think too much. You know God's there. You know God saved you in several situations in the past. So why would you doubt him now or in the future? Doesn't make sense, logically. And we're the ones missing out when we lack faith. Again, the point on the board, it's a waste of God-given time on this earth to be pushed into realizing God's mercy in your life. Just have faith. Trust Him regardless of what sight tells you at times. And I was talking to DJ about this earlier before service. We were talking about Kathy and her struggles and the fact that if we're not careful, especially when we're suffering, we, we can judge by sight. We look at the suffering and say, that doesn't seem fair. Or, God, why? Why that suffering? And we start to doubt God. Well, when you do that, you're judging by sight. You're judging by sight. You're making a call as if you have all the information also. You have obviously no knowledge compared to God. So don't judge by sight. We're told to walk by faith which means believing even when you don't see. So we often do it to ourselves. How many times did Jesus have to say to his own apostles that they lacked faith? As you read the four Gospels, a lot of times, several times, different ways, but you have little faith, right? You have little faith, he kept saying to them. So it's going to happen. If it happened to them, it's going to happen to us. That lack of faith, which we all experience at times, comes back to giving into the temptation of fear. That's what came up big on Sunday also. Giving into the temptation of fear leads us to a lack of faith and a lack of love. And on the board we saw that doubt is a close relative of fear and fear is really the opposite of love think about this for a minute okay you're perfect right now you're perfect if we believed in god's love for us a hundred percent of the time we would never fear we would never have one fear if we hold we're not able to do this. If we 100% believe in God's love at all times, we would never fear anything or anyone. Right? Just think of a child trusting their father, right? A little child says, my dad can kick your butt or whatever. He's got no idea if his dad can kick your butt. That little child has a, child, a faith of a child. It says, I trust my father implicitly. I have no doubts that he's going to always be there for me. So what happens? That child has zero fear. He'll go running off a cliff. Ah, I might fall, but my dad will catch me. (laughs) No, he won't. You don't know that. but We're talking human, human terms here, right? Your father might not be there. But the child's fearless when he has trust in his parent. So, again, doubt is a close relative of fear, and fear is really the opposite of love. Turn again to 1 John 4.18. 1 John 4.18. If we believed in God's love for us 100% at all times, we would never, ever fear. Because they're opposites and, and they exclude each other. 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So there's a gap. There's love missing. Maybe it's like uh, proportional. The more love you lack, the more fear you have. The more you believe God's love for you, the less fear you have. And this is what came up on Sunday, and Pastor asked us at this point to really concentrate on the point on the board regarding mutual exclusion. Love is Christ's domain. When we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 13 14, we are motivated by love. Fear is the flesh's domain. When we put on the old self, as in Ephesians 4, we are motivated by fear. I mean, why don't we trust God at times? Why wouldn't we trust God? We're doubting Something We're having a fear that he's not going to come through in a certain area, which is irrational, knowing God's perfect. So we're once again faced with the question of whose power will we operate in and who will we choose to put on each day? And what voice will we listen to and believe or trust, the spirits or the fleshes. Turn to John 6, verse 63. John 6, 63. Again, the point on the board is that these things, love and fear, are mutually exclusive. Love is Christ's domain. Fear is the flesh's domain. They don't mix. So if you catch yourself fearing, Repent. In other words, call it out. Where did that that fear come from? Why am I fearing right now? I'm going to call that out as wrong. I'm going to call that out as my flesh getting the best of me right now. So I'm going to repent. I'm going to stare it in the face. I'm going to be like, that's wrong. My God can do anything. I'm going to face this thing. They're two opposite systems of thinking and two different power sources. Look at John 6, 63 and 64. Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. There's the root of the problem. As came out in our series on Vessels of Mercy We were encouraged by the Spirit to continually pray for protection from temptation. Do you remember that? That came up at least three lessons in a row, if not four. Pray for protection against temptation. Why is that? Why is that all throughout the scriptures even? We're going to see another one this evening coming up right now. We talked about Agur's prayer in Proverbs 30 where he asks for the Lord's protection, not to give him too much, not to give him too little, so he doesn't stray. Why is that? Because on the board, even though the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And this is talking about your spirit, your human spirit that God gave you, the new nature in you even, is willing, but the flesh is weak. And thus the battle that is continually going on in our daily lives. Uh, We see the battle in Romans chapter 7, Galatians chapter 5. You can read those on your own if you just want to get a flavor for that again and see what we're dealing with. But turn right now to Matthew 26, 41. Or actually, we'll start in verse 40. Matthew 26, 40. Even though the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And this was the Lord's warning to the apostles. This was the night before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane. And even though he already knew they were going to all run away, he wanted them to, he was training them, even in this hour of his suffering, his horrible thing that was on his doorstep, which he knew all about, he was still training them. In verse 40, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Keep watching and praying that you don't enter into temptation. The implication is if they prayed more and stayed awake, and prayed more to resist temptation. They might have. But they didn't. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. That battle is always there. So what do we do? We pray. And we ask for God's help. Over and over and over. One day at a time. That's all we can do, right? One day at a time. That's how we bring glory. And our job is to resist in this day. Temptation. How do we get the power? Only from... Asking him for the help. Asking him for the power. The flesh, think about this, the flesh is always tempting us towards fear. Always. Fear of being rejected, which came up on Sunday and is coming up again. Fear of being attacked. Fear of losing something. The flesh is always tempting us towards fear instead of trusting God's love for us to take care of things. A repeating principle coming forth lately has been if we're willing to trust God or not. What's our habit of life, our lifestyle? We all fail, but what's our lifestyle? Jesus is saying, will you believe my Father's goodness and mercy as the Spirit is convicting you even right now? Will you believe my Father's goodness and mercy or will you believe the whispering lies of the flesh and therefore even suffer for it? I talked, talked about Matthew 6. I mentioned Matthew 6 in the you know, series on the vessels of mercy, right? That whole chapter is like Jesus encouraging us to believe the Father's goodness. But which one are you going to listen to? The whispers of the flesh or the whisper of the Spirit who's convicting you, who's, who's encouraging, encouraging you towards peace? towards receiving god's grace and mercy and love instead of doubting it here's another way to put it on the board will you constantly have to be pushed along bruised and muddied from habitually doubting god or will you allow yourself to be pulled by the spirit of jesus inside of you and i hope you know what i mean by that it's that still small voice it's that spirit convicting your conscience of goodness, of God's goodness. Will you allow yourself to be pulled by the spirit of Jesus inside of you that's testifying to the goodness of your heavenly father? And the words allow yourself here were put in bold because I think about getting out of the way. See, to, to trust God, to be pulled by his spirit doesn't entail an activity by us it entails a willingness it entails us getting out of the way so god's like pulling us right he's like come on come on come on so in other words there's nothing stopping us from going along unless we put our foot down in the way so he's saying we just release will you let it go those doubts maybe maybe certain people put in your head or in your soul from the past to doubt to not trust Will you allow yourself to be pulled by the Spirit of Jesus inside of you that is testifying to the goodness of your Heavenly Father? Or are you going to get bruised your whole life? As Pastor shared on Sunday, love is what pulls us towards righteousness. Fear is what pushes us towards righteousness, if at all. I mean hopefully it does but it doesn't always when we choose to go that route. I was thinking about the parable of the talents. In the parable of the talents, the Lord gave one guy five talents, the master gave one guy five talents, one guy two and one guy one, each according to their ability. And the guy with five, you know, he earned another five for the Lord. The guy with two earned another two for the Lord. The guy with one hid the money in the ground because he feared his master. He wasn't motivated by love like the other two who did something with what God gave them. But those who live in fear might see zero fruit come out of it. So are you going to allow God to pull you? Are you going to accept what his word says about his love and mercy or are you going to doubt the whole way along and be fruitless god hopes his children choose to draw near by faith and enjoy the riches of his glory the riches of his glory of the inheritance in the saints as in ephesians 1 he wants us to live in that and what's god's glory his mercy and his grace He wants us to live in that, like to enjoy that, to bask in that. To be like, this is who my father is. And we don't do it. But that's your father's hope for you as his child. He's like, will you just come along? Stop putting your foot down or putting your foot against a rock while I'm trying to pull you? Why are you doing that, son? I'm good. And this might be what we call functioning in God's love or abiding in it. And, and it's very practical. The thing is, it works. If we get out of the way, it works, both in ourselves and then through us towards others and how we live. Have you forgotten this truth on the board in 1 Corinthians 13, a love never fails? Love never fails. You can't go wrong if you choose to operate in love. You can't go wrong even if you're rejected, even if you're spit upon. You can't go wrong. It never fails if we choose to function in it, to live our lives by it. So God wants us to be motivated by his goodness, including his love, not by fear. And as we synthesize these principles, each individually, And we decide to make them our own. This also came up on Sunday. And let's just call it, why do we repent? Why do we repent? That's the key question. God would much rather you understand that your sinning is a root cause of pain and therefore an affront to His love. He'd rather you understand that His love wants to protect you from hurting yourself and others And stop for that reason, not just because he might be forced to stop it for you. This takes examining our motivation. And I was doing it before class as I was reading my notes. I'm like, ooh. I I thought of a certain part of my life, and I'm like, you know what? I'm operating out of fear in that part of my life. Even fear of God's, you know, discipline. Rather than operating in that area out of his love. And wanting to do something for him. Not wanting to do something against him. If if that makes sense. Not wanting to sin against him. Out of love. That's what he wants. Again, the point on the board. Why do we repent? God would much rather you understand that your sinning is a root cause of pain and therefore an affront to his love. He'd rather you understand that his love wants to protect you from hurting yourself and others. And stop for that reason, not just because he might be forced to stop it for you. It's back to a parent-child relationship, right? So that's what the Spirit's getting at. Uh, Are you willing to stop certain sinful activities out of fear or out of love? The right perspective of love allows us to function in Hebrews 4.16. Turn again to Hebrews 4.16. The right perspective of love allows us to function in this principle. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're not going to do that if you don't believe in God's love for you. If you don't trust the Father's goodness. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We saw this on the board on Sunday with confidence from Peresia. It means freedom. And that kind of hit me. It means freedom. Because you're free in Christ, you can be confident towards God. Because Christ's blood paid the full price for our debt, we have the freedom to go to God and be confident about it. And what does that take? Faith? That what the Bible says is true about that and about you as a believer in Christ? With confidence means freedom, openness, openness. Especially in speech, boldness, confidence implies proper perspective regarding God's desire for us to freely enjoy access to the one who loves us, who's merciful and gracious to us. Picture a child, you know, unafraid and just running on to and jumping on the lap of their father. God wants us to freely enjoy access to the one who loves us with that kind of confidence in who he is. But we have to approach him without doubting or fear, as we know from James 1. So we've been asking the Spirit to give us the right perspective on God's mercy. Uh, We've also seen when we disengage from our Lord's mercy, we have to fall back on the imperfect inability, or inf- imperfect abilities, I'm sorry, of the flesh to deliver us. We have no choice. When we disengage from God's mercy and we doubt it, we have to fall back on the flesh and have some strange hope that it's going to get us by or get us through, which we know doesn't work. Go to uh, Hebrews 6:19. Our hope and confidence must be in Christ alone if we're going to have peace. We're not going to have peace if we hope in the flesh. Hebrews 6.19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. That implies peace right there, folks. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. In other words, if you're on the stormy sea in a ship and you have the best anchor possible for your ship, and the anchors down there holding on to the bottom of the ocean floor, you have peace because you know you're not going anywhere. We have the perfect anchor. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. What also came up on Sunday is that we like to put our hope in other people. That's what we like to do. That's what the flesh likes to do. We like to worship and idolize people way too much. In other words, we take it too far. So concentrate. It's one thing to admire someone's talent and appreciate it. Nothing wrong with that. Especially if you see, see if what it really is, a gift from God. If someone's really good at a certain thing. So it's one thing to admire someone's talent and appreciate it. It's another thing to put them on a pedestal in your heart. Just think about that phrase. I mean, I can, I can picture this, what I've done in my own soul about certain people in, in the past at least. It's another thing to put somebody on a pedestal in your heart and listen, therefore, to every word they say as if they have godly wisdom. See, in other words, we have to draw the line in our soul. We have to be mature and not immature like wanting to follow every, every quote-unquote hero image we have out in the world. We have to be mature and think with God in Christ and be like, wait a minute. There's a line there that I've been passing or crossing that is just wrong. I was going to say something else. It's just wrong. And be objective. In other words, stop giving in to that weakness because our flesh craves to idolize. Put someone on a pedestal and have confidence in a a person, in a man, in someone we can see. That's really the problem. We want someone we can see to follow instead of walking by faith. So again, um, it's one thing to admire somebody's talent and appreciate it. It's another thing to put them on a pedestal in your heart. And this made me think of our World War II generation in this country and think about the times you might have been fortunate enough to have a conversation with one of them. They're becoming more rarer and rarer because they're getting so old. The World War II generation now is in their mid-90s, if not upper 90s. But if you've ever had a conversation with anybody in the past from that generation, what did you see? What did you see in them? Almost every time I had that chance, The thing I saw in them that that really sticks out in my soul even is they could see through any deceitful person or situation. I don't know if you agree or you know what I'm talking about. They could see right through people lying to them, flattering them, and on top of it, they wouldn't accept it. They were willing to call a spade a spade. That was beautiful about the World War II generation. Even if someone was famous in a certain area of life, they would not put them on par with God and Christ. They would not idolize them. Out of place, in other words. They would appreciate them and what they're good at, but when it, when it got too far, and maybe someone was demanding worship or being idolized, or another person was telling them that, you know what, you should idolize that person, in not so many words, they would say, Psh- They're no better than me. I'm no better than them. We're nothing without Christ kind of attitude, a lot of them being believers. But the point is they kept these two things righteously separate in their souls. They would not allow a person, especially a deceitful person, someone with flattering lips or trying to persuade them by appearance, they wouldn't allow it. So they had a mindset that if someone crosses that line or tries to cross that line, I'm going to call it out because there's only one God and there's only one Lord. Many of them had divine perspective and they only held Jesus in that high esteem of idolizing somebody, putting somebody on a pedestal in your heart. And then what happens then is, is dangerous The flesh seeks to worship man's righteous deeds. Somebody we can see. You know, I trust God and I want to trust God, and I know He's there and I know He loves me. And I know Jesus lived, but I haven't seen Him. But that person I can see. I can see what they're doing, I can see their facial expressions, I can see their beauty and their intelligence. Let me follow them. Wasn't this the, the problem with the Jews in the desert in the Old Testament? I want something I can see in worship. Build me a calf, a golden calf, which makes no sense whatsoever, right? It doesn't speak. It doesn't, you know, it's not influential. It's not beautiful, whatever. I need something I can see. That's what the flesh is saying. I fear that God of the universe doesn't love me. So I want an idol that I can see, that I can even touch. And hold on to. The flesh is very tricky. And as we've seen, this is disgusting in God's eyes. So perspective is everything. If a person doesn't gain the right perspective of God from the word of God, if, they, if they're not willing to learn it and then believe it and take it with them in life, they're going to fall into a trap of idolizing man, either himself or another man. And it's living in a place of deceit. You got tricked. And as came up on Sunday, even, even an honorable life of a soldier or a Navy SEAL in our military, which is a wonderful thing that we're all grateful for and appreciate. But are we to idolize them? Are we to put them in a pet, on a pedestal in our heart as though they're not a sinner? as though they have all the answers to every part of life even are we to then listen to their every word about life as though they're god of course not right when you put it that way of course not but isn't that what people do in our society we watch tv and we we put a hero on tv right and the camera's this close in their face i hate when they do that on tv or they're interviewing somebody and they literally put the camera this close so you can see his nostril here and everything it's like Let's get closer because he's our hero, our idol. And it's just inordinate. Let's put him on a pedestal instead of admiring the gift of God that he walked in or she walked in. Our world's gotten out of control. So are we to listen to every word? Of people that are successful in life in one area or another? Or do we appreciate them and their sacrifice knowing none of this would even be possible without our Lord and Savior who made the ultimate sacrifice for all time at the cross? Perspective. Perspective. We can get so silly at times in the flesh, like a little schoolgirl. Here's what the Spirit was getting at on Sunday. And this came up in the lesson, but I put it on the board for you. Man loves to misappropriate wisdom to those who are good in other noteworthy occupations. This is where, you know, Pastor was saying, if someone's, for example, a really good actor, And you really admire their acting. like They they, they do a great job and you buy into the movie and you're in the movie because they're just a great actor. And usually they look good too, so they're easy on the eyes, it's even easier, right? So you follow them in your soul if you're not careful. You follow them. You start to adore them as though that's the real person acting in a certain role. And because they're a good actor, does that give them the wisdom to teach us about life About how our government should run? Of course not, right? Not when you put it that way. But do people listen to them like hook, line, and sinker? Like whatever they say is gold? Yes. Which makes no sense if they have no training in that area. What's their expertise on politics? What's their wisdom on God or religion? And yet they spout like vomit out of the mouth their opinion without any scripture. And what do people do? I'm going to buy it because you know what? They convince me on the big screen that they're real and that they're a good person and that they're trustworthy. Meanwhile, in their personal life, it's an actual, absolute wreck. And if you knew their personal life, you'd, you'd be shocked, right? Not you, but most people would. We're so silly. But many people do this thing, putting them on a pedestal in their heart, in their soul, and it makes no sense. Why would you trust them because they're good at one thing? Why would you trust everything somebody says because they're good at one thing? You're placing your trust in their words because they're good at something else besides what they're talking about. So what's the root cause of that? The Spirit's always always asking us questions, right? What's the root cause of that? Why do people do that? It's because we wrongly place them on a pedestal in our hearts. That's the only reason. Because we're idolizing them. It doesn't make logical sense to listen to someone, what an actor says about politics. But we do it because we have wrongly put them in a higher place in our souls, in our hearts, that they don't belong at. And so we look at them with these endearing eyes and trust everything they say. So if that's what you tend to do in your flesh, like if that's your tendency, we all have weaknesses. If that's your tendency, make a decision to not fall into that lie any longer. Call it what it is. Call it a lie. Be like the World War II generation attitude. Be like, that's inappropriate. That's across the line. Nobody's an idol except Jesus Christ. I've been crossing the line in my heart, in my soul, in that area. And realize it's a trap from the flattering lips of Satan. What does Satan do to get you away from God? He flatters. Both with words and with appearance. Why do you think everyone on TV is beautiful? Why do you think all these newscasters are like models? I thought they were giving the news. Shouldn't they be smart or well-spoken? And usually they are anyway. But why, why, why is that the case? So Satan can flatter us by words and appearance. Suck us in to idolizing someone other than the Lord. So he, he and he alone is worthy of such a place in our hearts. Be careful who you give that place to in your heart. It might even be a member of the opposite sex that you're interested in or you are really attracted to. Don't do it. You're giving them a place in your heart that only belongs to the Lord. Do you need to fall again flat in your face to realize that you shouldn't have done that? That you improperly idolize someone? And not only is Christ the only one that should be having that place in our hearts, but also we should cast out all other temptations to idolize man because of that because of Christ. As Michael mentioned in the baptism on Sunday, when we placed our trust in Christ, we said yes to him and we married him. So says Holy Scripture. We're married to him. We're the bride of Christ. And that not only means saying yes to Christ, but saying no to every other suitor that comes at us and tempts us. If you're married, your job is to be committed to that person, right? Therefore, your job is to say no to all the other temptations, knocking at your door. That's what you did even when you made that decision. So keep that perspective. Who are you letting be on a pedestal in your heart? Who are you allowing to be there inappropriately where you're so, let's say, taken with them That you listen to the every word and you won't miss a word. And whatever they say is like, I hate to use the word gospel. Whatever they say is like gospel to you. That's sick. That's scary. And we've probably all done it. If not now, in in the past we've done it. So say no to all those temptations and pray to God for strength and wisdom about those temptations. That are going to come at you each and every day, especially the more you follow Christ many of these people that were tempted to idolize don't even think they need God's mercy I mean there are some really successful people out there that give God all the credit there are some that take all the credit and if you ask them don't even believe in God or they think their deeds are good enough on their own that they don't need God's mercy So if that's true, why would we listen to them so intently, hanging on their every word? Because we wrongly place them on a pedestal in our hearts. So as the Bible would say, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. Don't be a lover of the world or the things in the world. So we saw this on Sunday as we begin to close. God's scale of values. Mercy takes a big hit when we lose sight of the fact that nothing we do in the flesh has any value in God's eyes. Even if everyone on earth says differently. The need for mercy is fleeting for those who think their deeds are righteous in the flesh. That's self-righteousness. They think they're good enough in some way that they don't need mercy all of God's mercy alright I'll take some alright I'll admit I need some once in a while not too often but in general there's something good about me and that's man's scale of values and God is uh, grossed out by that turn to 1 Peter 5 6 we'll close with a couple verses I'm not going to get through all my notes but say la vie must not be meant to be. First Peter five six. God hates self righteousness. What, what's our job? To be firm in the faith. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. See this faith. You need you need faith to do that. Do you trust God loves you enough? that he'll take your anxieties upon himself do you trust that he cares for you i mean actively like every day functionally interactively do you trust that he cares for you so that you cast all of your worries on him verse 8 be of sober spirit be on the alert your adversary the devil prowls about prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour how does he devour people? How about getting them to buy into this self-righteousness? That they don't really need God's mercy. Not 100%. He's devouring people's souls that way. But verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. That means trusting God and even his love for you. So we're called to stand firm in our faith in Jesus Christ. And that reminded me of one of my favorite verses on this subject. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 56. 1 Corinthians fifteen, 56. We're called to stand firm in our faith, in our hope in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What are we called to do? Because of the Lord's victory on the cross, because of the sufficiency of that, we're called to be steadfast and immovable. In other words, stand firm in the faith. Don't move. When someone attacks your faith, don't take a step backwards. Don't live in fear. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in your faith in God's love for you. Because if you do that, you'll never fear. And if you consider who the Lord is, you won't fear. You'll be steadfast and immovable only because you honestly consider who the Lord is. For example, sorry I missed that slide for you, Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is Perfect for all his all his ways are just a god of faithfulness and without injustice righteous and upright is he that's our god and the idea is that we have someone with such integrity that we can always count on him that's why scripture calls the lord our rock in many scriptures He'll always be there. He's the only one who is truly and perfectly immovable and steadfast. Remember the anchor of our soul? The hope hope in him is the anchor of our soul. In other words, the perfect anchor that can't be moved, that won't let you be moved. So how can we obey 1 Corinthians 15, 58? Be steadfast and immovable. It's because we know the one we trust in. He is perfectly steadfast and immovable. Therefore, we stand firm in the faith, knowing who God is in both His justice and His love. So again, on the board, we'll close with this. Will we allow ourselves to be pushed or pulled? What's your lifestyle going to be? You won't be perfect, but what's your lifestyle going to be? This is simply depends upon our faith and humility towards the Lord. It's really that simple. It depends on your faith and humility towards the Lord or lack thereof. Are you going to trust in His love and goodness or are you going to doubt His love and goodness? That's going to determine determine the happiness of your life even. And if you need to be pushed or pulled to the final finish line, so to speak. So we'll end on that note, and we'll continue on Thursday. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for repetition. Uh, We thank you for helping us to discern these truths in our souls uh, through your Holy Spirit's work in us. Help us to break these things down and to also personally accept them with the faith of a child. Father, we thank you that you are love, that your glory is your mercy and your compassion. We thank you that that's your most glorious part, so to speak, for us to uh, relish in and, and have joy in as your children. Father, we ask that you increase our faith and our humility, and help us bring these wonderful simple truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen.